sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. So let me pray for us before we jump into God's Word today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for revealing yourself to us, for sending your Son and showing us who he is, for sending him to die for our sins. God, be with us today. Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, and let us listen to him. Let us obey him. Not to earn our salvation, but because we have been saved, let us respond in love to him. Let us respond in repentance and turning away of our sin because we have been forgiven of our sin. God, we love you. We thank you. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of Matthew, going verse by verse, and we are in Matthew 16, 21. And the title of today's message is, Take Up Your Cross. And before we get into Matthew 16, 21, I do want to just emphasize and kind of give us the context from last week to remind us. Last week we saw the four foundations of our faith. We saw Jesus' death and resurrection as the first foundation. Second, we saw that we should obey and follow Jesus' teaching, as we'll get into more today, following Jesus' teaching. Last week, the third foundation, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then last, we saw the fourth foundation, how Jesus set up his apostles to be the foundation of the church, to grow the church through them. And we ended with a question last week. We asked, who do you say Jesus is? And we'll be asking that question again this week. Who do you say Jesus is? So today, as we turn to Matthew 16, 21, Today's message will be broken up into four main sections. First, we will look how we need to trust in God's ways. Second, we will look at how we should take up our cross. And what does that mean, to take up our cross? Third, we should listen to Jesus. And fourth, we should look forward to his return. So before we get into our passage, I do want to go to verse 20 of last week. This is where we ended last week when Jesus gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And we said, we really need to understand this in context because we're supposed to tell everyone about the Messiah. But at this point in salvation history, Jesus says, it's not the time to tell everybody. I still have more to teach you. And if you go declaring that I'm the Messiah... That will only hasten my execution, and I have more to teach you. And that's what Jesus will begin doing. He will be showing them something very important because they did not understand the nature of Jesus' mission. They didn't understand that the Messiah would not come through military conquest, but the Messiah, Jesus, came not to fight battles 
but to win and to be our savior through his sacrificial death. The way he will ensure the defeat of death and Hades for his disciples, for the family of God, is by first dying and defeating death himself. And so this is what Jesus will teach us starting out in verse 21. It says, from then on, marks a transition point. Jesus is going to be continually showing his disciples and us today something. Jesus began to point out to his disciples, what did he point out? That it was necessary. That it was in God's plan. It was in God's divine plan. It was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Not only suffer, but as we'll see, he suffers from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and he will be killed. He will be face suffering and death from the religious leaders of the day that are supposed to be pointing people to the Messiah, telling them that this is the Son of God, but instead they refuse. They refuse to repent. They refuse to believe in him, and they plot to kill him. And Jesus says this is necessary to happen. He'll suffer. He'll be killed. But here's the good news. He will be raised on the third day. Here we see the beginnings of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross. This is how Jesus will save his people. It's not through military conquest, but through his death on the cross. And God was not caught off guard by this. It was in his plan. This is the plan of God. Do we trust in God's ways? We have seen Jesus' death alluded to and hinted at before in the Gospel of Matthew. But now here it is. It is the first explicit clear statement that the Messiah, the Son of the living God, will die at the hands of sinful men who were supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel. They will reject God himself. We have already seen the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus and they're beginning to formulate to plot to kill him. Here we see Jesus' supernatural knowledge of the future, not only of his death, but also of his resurrection, because he will be raised again on the third day. However, this idea of a dying Messiah, a dying Savior, was so shocking to many people, especially shocking to Peter. He does the unthinkable. What does Peter do? He takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter's pride got the better of him, thinking he knew better than the Son of God himself. While Peter was right to declare Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, last week as we looked at, here he shows that he is still an imperfect human. He is still learning and at least Peter took God aside to rebuke him. No. How could he do this? How could he rebuke Jesus? We think we know better than God sometimes, don't we? We don't trust in his ways. We say, God, why did you allow that to happen? If it were me, I would have done it differently. And of course, we don't say this publicly in front of everyone. 
But when we get home, we pull God aside as if he were the kid and we were the parent. And we say, what are you doing? Our pride, our lack of trust to think we know better than God. And Peter says, oh no, Lord. The literal words is mercy to you, Lord. He would rather God have mercy on Jesus. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to his master, his teacher, his Lord. But Jesus already taught them that this must happen. It is necessary. It is God's plan to happen. Verse 23, Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Whew. One minute, Peter is praised for declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. The next, Jesus refers to him as Satan. It reminds him who is the teacher and who is the student. Peter is not supposed to be telling Jesus what to do, but learning and following behind Jesus. He's not supposed to be in front, but Jesus says, get behind me. When we put ourselves, when we put our concerns, when we put our human concerns ahead of Jesus, we are in essence removing Jesus from his throne. We are not to say, Jesus, follow me and back me up, support what I want to do. But we are to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Teach me your ways. Teach me how to build your kingdom, not my own. Because if we are more concerned about what we want, about human concerns, rather than God's concerns and his ways, if we are doing that, we are thinking and acting like Satan. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is speaking like Satan. Satan is trying to get Jesus away from the cross. He is trying to tempt Jesus to disobey his father, to take the easy road. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die to be exalted, Jesus. We saw Satan tempt Jesus this way in Matthew 4, 8. It says, again, the devil took him, that is, took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. This road of exaltation and the road of glory and having all the kingdoms of the world, this is the way where you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. You just have to fall down and worship me, Satan says. But what does Jesus say? He says, go away, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus wants to serve and obey God the Father, even if that leads to suffering. Because Jesus trusts his Father. And he is thinking about God's concerns. He's thinking about the things from an eternal perspective, not just a temporary human perspective. And with this in mind, Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 16, it says, Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
I'm not going to be tempted into going away from the cross. And he says, you are a hindrance to me. Peter and the apostles will be the foundation rock of Jesus' church. But right now, Peter is being a hindrance. He's being a stumbling block. He's setting a trap for Jesus. Jesus calls out Peter for his wrongful thinking and teaches him the proper way of discipleship, the proper way to follow Jesus. Will we trust in God's ways, even when, we, when it leads to suffering? Because that's what Jesus will talk about and teach us in our second section, taking up our cross in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Like teacher, like student. Jesus says if you want to follow him, that Jesus is, he himself is denying himself. He's taking up his cross. And he says, so will you. Jesus has said, come ye who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And part of the reason we're tired, part of the reason we're burdened, is because we have been thinking about ourselves. We have been concerned with our own selfish desires. Jesus says to trust in Him as your God, Savior, and King, and follow Him. Not follow selfish human desires of comfort, self-preservation, but follow Jesus even to the point of suffering and death. For to take up a cross, that is a reference to the death march of a person sentenced to capital punishment by the Roman authorities. As Jesus faced persecution, so will his disciples. And Jesus is preparing them for persecution even unto death. While salvation is the free gift of God, Following Jesus may cost you your very life. But here's the thing. Jesus says it's worth it. And it is so worth it. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. So whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That is, will you abandon Jesus so that you can be comfortable? Will you turn away from following Jesus so that you can live a little bit longer here on earth? Will you denounce him to save your flesh? Jesus is saying that if you value your temporary life, if you value selfish desires more than following, obeying, and worshiping me, then you will actually be losing your life. You think you're saving your life by avoiding persecution, by avoiding dying for Jesus, but you actually lose your life. You lose eternal life in the process. But the opposite is also true. Whoever loses his life because of Jesus, will find it. That is, if you are willing to lose your physical life and remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what comes, Jesus promises eternal life. Because think about it, what is worth more? Temporary life now 
physical comforts or eternal life, eternal comfort, being with God for eternity. Jesus points this out in verse 26. He says, what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Because say you won the lottery, for example, won this crazy lottery in which not just a million or billion or trillion dollars, you win the lottery and it's the whole world. All the money in the world, every house, everything ever made, all the land, property, it's yours. You own it. You get to do whatever you want with it. Jesus is saying, even if you have all that, but you miss eternal life, he says, what is all that stuff benefit you in comparison? Because say you own the whole world for a lifetime. Say you get 100 good and perfect years of health and wealth. But to get those years, you trade millions and millions and millions. You trade an eternity of years with a perfect relationship with God and all his blessings. You trade that away to get a hundred good years here on earth. You trade away the millions and millions of years and you get millions and millions of years of pain and rejection and separation of God just so that you could get a hundred good years on earth. Who would do that? Who would make that trade? Because after you die, you can't cash in all your stuff. You can't get, that can't get you into heaven. You can't give anything to God in exchange for your life. As he says, what will anyone give in exchange for his life? You can't buy eternity. Jesus says to find your life, to find eternal life, you must lose your earthly life, lose your selfish desires, trust in him and him alone and follow him. For there is an eternity at stake. There is more than just this physical life. And there will be a time of judgment that we need to be prepared for and look forward to. As Jesus teaches us in verse 27, he says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels, that is referring to himself as the Son of Man from Daniel 7:13. He's going to come with his angels. A high claim for Jesus' divinity here. Only God has angels. Jesus has his angels as well. And he's coming in the glory of his Father, God the Father. And what will he do? He will reward each according to what he has done. Jesus as the judge. The judge over everyone. Jesus is God. He is the judge over all. And he will reward each according to what he has done. So what do we need to do? What is he going to judge us by? Do we want to see, receive a reward and not a punishment? What is he going to judge us by? Jesus has already told us. He's told us to take up our cross and follow him. To die to our selfish desires. Be willing to die and face persecution for the name of Jesus. Follow, learn from, trust in Jesus. Trust who he is who he says he is. He has told us he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He is God himself in the flesh and is by his death and resurrection we are saved. 
a free gift, not of works, so that we can't boast. It is by God's grace we are saved, so let us respond to God's grace and remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution. Because we will be judged according to how we respond to Jesus. What, how did you respond to Jesus? Will we value him? Or will we value our lives and value our selfish desires more than him? Now Jesus will in effect say, if you don't believe me, I will give you a sign. I'll give you a sign that I am the divine judge. I'll give you proof. Verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You want proof that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the judge? Some of you will see that the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You will see this with your very eyes. Now, the language of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom may sound like Jesus is coming back again, his second coming. That is, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, he will come back and judge the living and the dead one day. However, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says that some of them won't die until they see this happen. So whatever Jesus is referring to, some of the disciples will see it. And so what will they see? What does it mean that they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Now, this is likely referring to his transfiguration, as we'll see in the very next paragraph in Matthew 17. And here's three reasons why this is pointing to Jesus' uh, glory and transfiguration on the mountain in the next chapter. First, it does happen in the very next paragraph. So it's like, boom, here it is. You, here's your sign, right? Second, Jesus says that only some of the disciples will see this. And that is what will happen. Only Peter, James, and John behold Jesus' radiance on the mountain. So it checks that off. And then in third, I think this is pretty strong evidence that it's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, because we see Peter reflecting back on this event, and he describes it as coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in 2 Peter 1.16. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths. We didn't just make this up about Jesus. When we made known to you the power, and the key phrase here, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when did the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ happen? He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He saw it. Where did he see it? When he received honor and glory from God the Father, when... The voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. As we'll see, that's what God says on the mountain. So good evidence there from Peter reflecting back on this event as, he'll, as we'll see. Now, I do want to point out that as we turn to see the mountain of transfiguration, this could also be a first in a series of events in which Jesus is bringing in God's kingdom. So when Jesus says that you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, I think this is the first in a series of events of his transfiguration on the mountain, but it, it could include more events happening after that. But at base, it points to Jesus' transfiguration.
And Jesus is constantly showing us who he is. And the question for us, do we believe him? Do we trust him? Do we follow him and trust in him and his ways, not our own? Do we worship him as our king and our judge? And are we ready to stand before him as our judge on the last day? And here is Jesus showing us who he is in our third section, listening to Jesus. As we'll see who he is, because we see who he is, we should listen to him. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And what happens? He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. They see the Son of Man in his glory, coming in his kingdom. And what does the story remind you of? What does this account, what does this imagery remind you of? It should remind us of what happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. First, both accounts have a period of six days being on a mountain. Mount Sinai for Moses and Jesus on this high mountain, which many people describe Mount Sinai as a high mountain as well. Second, Moses' face shone and was radiant from beholding the glory of God. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's not reflecting the divine glory, but he's radiating glory from himself, from inside himself. He's radiating the glory of God. He is God in the flesh. And then third, further evidence that Jesus is God. We see his description of his clothes becoming white as light. Just as the ancient of days, who God, the ancient of days, God, how he is described in Daniel 7, 9 through 10. Jesus is God. Then who else do they see here? Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And perhaps Peter, remembering the story of Moses, and saying, this, is, this reminds me of what happened on the mountain with Moses. And he remembered how Moses stayed on the mountaintop for 40 days and 40 nights, and perhaps assumed they would be camping out. So in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter, he's trying. He addresses Jesus as Lord, and he says, If you want, I can do this for you. But we know from Mark 9, 6, that he did not know what to say, since they were afraid. He was trying his best, but sometimes it's just okay it's probably best just to be quiet and listen. When you're scared and you don't know what to say, it might, not, it might be best to say nothing at all. As we see, he's, trying, he's talking and he's trying to do something. But look, he should be listening. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. Again, to remind you of Exodus and Moses, the cloud covering the mountain. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We are to listen to the son 
of God. God has already made part of this statement at Jesus' baptism, describing Jesus in the terms of Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42 to describe Jesus as the messianic king. And because Jesus is God's son, the, the Messiah, the king, we are to listen to him. Thus coming full circle, pointing to Jesus as the promised prophet like Moses. Look at Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is talking. There's, God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. From among your brothers, you must listen to him. This is Jesus prophesied all the way in Deuteronomy 18. And as Moses brought down the mountain, the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God that brings forth the new covenant by his blood. And we are to listen to him. Not only listen, but do what he says. And what did Jesus tell his disciples six days before? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Will you listen to Jesus? And after hearing the voice of God on the mountain, the disciples, they heard this. They fell face down and they were terrified. They acted just like the Israel's, Israelites at Sinai. They had fear when they heard the voice of God. But we see Jesus came up and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. While in awesome sight, seeing Jesus' appearance change before them into brilliant light, hearing the voice of God the Father, it lasted only a moment. Matthew does not tell us what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about, but we do see in Luke 9, 31, he describes it this way. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure. That is speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And what is Jesus about to go to do in Jerusalem? To die. And so it's likely Moses and Elijah come to Jesus at this important point. And just right after uh, the temptation from Satan to uh, say, you don't need to go to the cross. Speaking through Peter, P Peter speaking like Satan, saying, you don't need to go to the cross. Moses and Elijah come and say, hey, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about his departure, likely encouraging him, saying, you can do this. Be obedient to the Father. Look at it from an eternal perspective. This will save millions and millions and millions of people from their sin. Don't disobey. Remain faithful. And Jesus, again, turns the disciples' attention to the cross as we pick back up in Matthew 17, 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Again, pointing them to his death and resurrection. Again, we must read these verses in context for after his death and resurrection, we are to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God and that everyone should listen to him. 
But for right now, in this moment in history, they are to stay quiet about this amazing sight they just witnessed because this would quicken Jesus' execution. And again, while Jesus' death is necessary, as we've already seen, it is also in God's timing. And Jesus still has more to teach his disciples. As we will see in our last section, his disciples are still hung up on this issue of Elijah and John the Baptist. Almost in a comical way, it takes them so long to understand. But we'll see why this is the case as we look in our last section, looking forward to Jesus' return. Verse 10. So after all this happens, the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So what are they talking about? After just seeing Elijah on the mountain talking with Jesus, and they remember what their teachers, what their scribes taught them about the Messiah. And they, they taught them that when the Messiah would come, Elijah would come before him and he would make everything right. Elijah would come and he would restore all things. Okay, So they, they, Elijah would come and be predicted in Malachi 4.5. And the scribes taught the disciples this, and likely building off Malachi 4 or 5, says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. But as we'll see, the scribes misunderstood. And Jesus has already taught them who the Elijah is. Back in Matthew eleven, thirteen. 13, we'll go back to verse 12. says, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. Sorry, I don't have Matthew 11 up there. All right, so Matthew, Jesus has already told them this in Matthew eleven thirteen. He says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And he said, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. So Jesus has already taught them that Elijah to come is looking forward to someone like Elijah, the prophet, and it's John the Baptist. Apparently, they didn't have ears to listen. So Jesus must explain it to them again. And he explains that the scribes misunderstood the prophecy of Malachi 4.5. For Jesus is likely quoting the scribes' misinterpretation of Malachi in this, in this verse, verse 11. When he says, Elijah is coming and we will restore everything. Because Elijah, John the Baptist, he didn't come and restore everything. The disciples look around and like, we, we still got problems going on. Rome is still over us. We still have sin. If th- things are falling apart. And if you're the Messiah, then everything should be restored. What's going on? We don't understand. This is what we were taught. And sometimes what we were taught isn't always right. So we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to go back to what Jesus is saying. We need to listen to him, not just base things on our own expectations. Because he says in verse 12, but I tell you. So your scribes told you this. They said everything would be perfect and right and restored when uh, the Messiah comes, when Elijah comes the first time. But he's like, I, 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 let me tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. 
In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he, he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. They had expectations of Elijah, expectations of the Messiah, but they were wrong. They didn't match the scriptures. When John told them to repent, they refused. They rejected John, they put him in prison, and John was ultimately executed. The same will happen to Jesus. John is foreshadowing Jesus' death. And just like they misunderstood and did not repent and believe in John's message, nor will they repent and believe in the Son of Man, they will not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus will suffer in the same way as John, making a full circle back to the beginning of today's message when Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, just like John did, from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. But here's the good news that we all go back to. is He's going to be raised again on the third day, defeating sin and death. So while the renewal of all things did not come at Jesus' first coming, did not come with John the Baptist, Jesus did usher in and begin the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection. And he is building his kingdom up until today. He is building his church on the good news of his death for our sins and his resurrection. And we await Jesus' second coming. When then, he will renew all things. All things will be made right. So until then, we are called to live in this world, live in this world of sin, of pain and death, and live not for ourselves, not for our selfish desires, not doing whatever we please, but we are to listen and follow Jesus. Listen to the Son of God. And he says, verse 24, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Are you listening to Jesus today? Do you have ears to listen? Because if you see Jesus for who he is, you will listen to him because he is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's our Savior. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your apostles who have passed down these eyewitness accounts of your transfiguration, of your radiant glory, God that help us trust in your ways. While we may not know why things are happening, we would trust that you know what's going on. Just as you had it planned and it was necessary for Jesus to die, we see the love of God on the cross. God, help us trust in you. Help us live for you. Help us take up our cross, deny ourselves this week and forevermore, and follow you the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.